Today, I want to get into some of the ways that our healthcare system isn't quite as science-based as it probably could be. For one thing, I want to raise some questions about whether there's too much emphasis on screening tests to try to find diseases in people who feel fine. As my guest today is going to explain, screening and all that follows it is very profitable for hospitals, but it may not be making people any healthier. And it might also have left hospitals less well-equipped than they should have been to deal with the pandemic. That's the topic of today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My guest today is Gilbert Welch. He's been a practicing physician for many years, and for the last few years, he's been studying ways that the healthcare system might be encouraging people to accept treatments that they don't need, or even treatments that could cause harm. His recent books include Overdiagnosed, Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health, and most recently, Less Medicine, More Health. So I, I probably did clinical work, oh, I guess maybe the first 25 years of my career and maybe about 10 years ago, um, I stopped uh, seeing patients. I, so my, my work was, you know, a mixture of uh, clinical work, teaching and uh, research. I'm a conventionally trained physician and I believe that medical care can do a, a lot of good, uh, particularly for people who are acutely uh, sick and injured. And making a timely diagnosis in people who are sick, like that is really, really important. What I worry about is when medical testing expands to people who are well, people without symptoms. You know, it's hard to make a well person better, but it's not that hard for us to make them worse. And so I, I think it's it's a really important distinction to, to separate out testing for the well for testing from people who are acutely experiencing problems. And that's why I'm worried sort of about the explosion of uh, medical testing and sort of this idea that's being sold that you can, you, you know, you can test yourself to health. Um, I, I think that's uh, not a good uh, idea at all. And when you said in the 1990s, you were studying early detection at the time, were you a believer or neutral? What did you learn from that? Well, I think I learned early on, really as a medical resident at the University of Utah, that when we looked hard for things, we could find things wrong in patients that they, things that weren't bothering them. And the typical problem was a spot on an x-ray. And we'd start doing things to try to evaluate what that spot was. And then bad things could happen to people. I mean, eventually uh, it moves to more invasive uh, testing, either bronchoscopy or needle biopsy. And then a certain proportion of patients would have uh, problems breathing after that. And, and I'll, as a resident, I said, oh my gosh, you, you almost didn't want to see these things because you knew it started a train of events that had nothing to do with the patient's problem. So that was the first time where I began to say, boy, you know, we can start finding things that may not matter to patients, but we can make things worse. You know, one of the things that struck me was that there may be misinformation in what people think is information if they're making the faulty assumption that 
anything labeled cancer would kill them if not treated. And it sounds like that's that's absolutely not true. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things to be, uh, there are a couple of lines of, of discussion here, but let me just start with just the word information because I think everybody assumes that information is valuable. And I think it's better to think about data and we can collect data on all sorts of things. And it, and it only becomes information when it really helps you predict what might happen in the future. And it's only useful knowledge if you can do something about it. Otherwise it's, it's just a burden. And I think it's something that, that medicine struggles with because as you can imagine over the course of my career, We've been inundated with data. I mean, just because more and more data is collected, whether it's a blood test or imaging tests or screening tests, now molecular diagnostics, physicians are just overwhelmed uh, with data. And sometimes they begin to lose the forest for the trees. They're not really listening to what is bothering the patient. They're, they're looking at what data points are bothering the doctor or what they think might be something that they... Uh, would feel uh, uh, remiss or at legal risk if they didn't do something about it, even though they, they may not think it's really the right thing to do. So it's a general problem in medicine. Everyone assumes that more data are always in uh, people's interest, but in fact, it can uh, distract physicians, uh, slow your care, and uh, lead people down rabbit holes that have nothing to do with your, your main problem. Oh, well, you touched on something very serious, and that's the idea that if I, as a patient, have some incidental finding that it, that it might be in the doctor's best interest to treat it for fear of malpractice, but not my best interest. Absolutely. And I think a lot of physicians uh, feel sort of caught by an incidental finding that they feel they must pursue, even though they're not sure it's really in their patient's uh, best interest. And, 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 and I think all doctors feel that pressure. What I found fascinating was that people might get cancer more often than we think, but only some cancers ever become a problem. That means that the more doctors look for cancers, the more they find these slow-growing ones that wouldn't have caused any trouble. But patients often get treated, and everyone tends to assume that the treatment saved their lives. My guest, Gilbert Welch, had a very interesting anecdote about a patient who was actually being treated for a symptom. He had some chronic hoarseness, and then something very alarming, completely unrelated to the hoarseness, came up in the tests that he had to undertake. Yeah, you brought up a very interesting case in the... the one of the chat book chapters you sent me about a guy who has suffered from hoarseness and the cause was discovered he was treated but in in all the tests he got kidney cancer was discovered <laughs> and that that somehow sounds terribly alarming that, that that was one of one of my most important patients because it was very you know i was just a junior faculty member i was probably in my third year and, and i knew the guy well he called me on the phone, you know, and I, it, one of the nice things about working in a small hospital is it, it, it was a rural area. You know, I live in Vermont and we cared for veterans in Vermont. We did do a fair amount of phone work because it was a long drive for patients. And and he said he was hoarse and he didn't need to tell me that, you know, it's just like obvious on the phone. You know, I knew the guy and it sounded really hoarse. He told me it was for six weeks and he was a smoker. And I said, oh, geez, six weeks, that's not a cold and so forth. And 
I just walked down the hall because uh, literally I was right next to the ear, nose, throat guy. I said, would you come and just look at these this, this man's vocal cords? And sure enough, he looked, you know, two days later, he came in and looked at the cords, found a small vocal cord tumor. And that should be the end of the story. You know, he removed the tumor. I uh, was going to follow it. He got a chest X-ray and, and the chest X-ray, you know, was fine in the lungs, but it looked like the area between the lungs was, was too big. And so people were worried, boy, maybe he had a, that's area called, it's called the mediastine and boy, maybe there's something harboring in there. We ought to get a, a chest CT. And so we got a chest CT, a CT scan of the chest. And they said, oh no, the X-ray is wrong. You know, and the, the lungs look fine. The mediastine looks fine. But then they saw something down on the kidney and it was like, are you serious? And it's a, you know, it's a real thing. It's a four or five centimeter mass on his kidney. And all of a sudden people want to take it out. And for me, that would have been the easiest thing. I was his primary care doc, but he, he comes to me, you're kidding me, doc. I come in with hoarseness and you want me to let you take my kidney out. There's got to be a better way. This case prompted Dr. Welsh to start studying kidney cancers, and he found that many of them never metastasize or cause any health problems. And yet, patients may lose a kidney if these are detected by so-called incidental finding, that is, when doctors are doing tests for some other reason. We're finding two to three times more kidney cancer now than we would have in 1975, but the death rate is totally flat. There's no change in the death rate, and it makes it look like what's happening is, in fact, the amount of disease is totally stable, but we're just discovering more and more of it. And unfortunately, we treat those patients. We don't treat them knowingly. We don't know that they're overdiagnosed. But we tend to treat everybody, and that means some people are being treated for cancers that we're never going to bother. Did this man keep his kidney then, and and was he okay with it? Oh, he kept his kidney, and I was I was, oh yeah. <laughs> so we followed it, and we did scans every three months, and you know sometimes it seemed to grow a little bit, sometimes it seemed to shrink a little bit, and uh, it was always sort of a nerve wracking time for me. And anyway, ultimately, about ten years later, he died from pneumonia, and uh, he had an autopsy. He and I had talked about you know if you die of something else, I'd you know what, if when you die, if you die. I'd like to do an autopsy. And we did do an autopsy and see if there's any sign of metastatic disease. There was no sign of metastatic disease, but sure enough, he had a five centimeter uh, renal cell carcinoma. There's no question he had cancer. It just was a cancer was never going to bother him. So interesting. And, you know, I wonder how many similar patients are scared, get the surgery, and then just make the assumption that the surgery saved their lives. That's absolutely the biggest part of the problem of early diagnosis is all the signals are assumed to be favorable, that, that everybody who has, understandably, everybody who has been found early and is treated sees themselves as having their lives saved, when in fact, all the extra survivors may be evidence of a harm, are much more likely to be evidence of a harm of overdiagnosis. Early detection is very counterintuitive. You, you, you get all these signals that you think are positive, but in fact, they may reflect overdiagnosis. Yeah, it's only counterintuitive if you assume that every cancer is going to kill you without treatment. And if you don't assume that, then you could see that, of course, you don't want to be taking the kidneys out of a, a person whose kidney is never going to develop uh, a metastatic cancer. 
In describing different kinds of cancer cases, he uses an analogy that involves barnyard animals that someone is trying to keep in a pen. And it turns out some of those animals are very slow moving and wouldn't get out whether or not there was any intervention taken to keep them in. And other animals are so fast that they're gonna get out no matter what you do. So, so we got this barnyard of animals and what we're trying to do is to keep them in the pen, right? To, to catch them early. And there are three animals in the barnyard. They're the birds, rabbits, and the turtles. And the birds have already escaped the barnyard. You can build all the fences you want. You're, you're not gonna keep the birds in. They are the fastest growing and most aggressive cancers in this analogy. They're the cancers that have already spread by the time they're detectable. Some cancers, you know, their primary site, few cells, and all of a sudden their cells elsewhere in the body. So screening, early detection can't help with the birds because they're already out of the barnyard. The question is, is whether treatment can. And by the way, I want to be clear, our cancer treatments have gotten better. The questions I raise are about cancer screening, not cancer treatment. Cancer treatment's a lot better. So those are the birds. Screening can't help with those. Now the rabbits are hopping around and you can catch them if you build enough fences. And they're the more slowly progressive cancers. And this is where screening potentially can help. And then they're the turtles. And you don't need any fences because they're not going anywhere anyway. These are can't things that meet the pathologic definition of cancer, but never progress to cause symptoms or death. Now, unfortunately, screening is really good at finding turtles, but doctors aren't very good at distinguishing turtles from rabbits. And so we tend to treat everybody, thereby causing the major harm of early cancer detection, overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Next, we started talking about the fact that there have been some pretty big advances in the ability to do cancer screening. And one of the latest that's been in the news is a type of blood test to detect early cancer, sometimes called a liquid biopsy. These are already known to be useful for monitoring cancer and people who've already been diagnosed or treated or are in remission. But there are big questions about whether these are useful for screening people who haven't had cancer and don't have any symptoms. We talk about a company called Grail. It's in the business of making these kinds of tests. And right now the company is engaged in a big clinical trial to see if they actually help people. Do you think that the liquid biopsy is better at it actually distinguishing cancers that are more malignant? Or is it just another form of, you know, finding little lumps with a CT scan? No. I, well, for, first, the liquid biopsy honestly describes a whole host of different approaches. I can tell you a little bit more about the GRAIL test, which is really looking for tumor DNA in the blood. I will say some of the other tests are also throwing in biomarkers, which are something different than tumor DNA, some of which have been tested before and found not to make any difference. But let's just focus on the idea of tumor DNA in the blood. Okay. And, and Grail is the company that is now authorized to give these tests to people in the UK. Is that right? Well, they're doing a trial. This is, and this is to Grail's credit. They are doing a randomized trial of 140,000 folks in the UK, and they've just started entering patients uh, last week. And we'll see uh, how that goes. I'm hoping to persuade them to get long enough follow-up so we can actually see whether it helps people live longer. 
My guest, Gilbert Welch, says that the company actually makes the pitch that they don't catch so many stage one cancers. And here it gets kind of counterintuitive because that might be a good thing. Since he says that those stage one tumors are usually the turtles, the cancers that wouldn't cause you any problems if they were just left alone. And in fact, their own data shows that the GRAIL test gets, you know, less than 10% of prostate and breast cancers at stage one. Well, that's where a lot of overdiagnosis is, stage one breast and prostate cancer. I think there's a lot of overdiagnosis there. So I think there is reason to believe that the GRAIL test will not have uh, as much overdiagnosis as, say, the imaging tests of uh, mammography or the uh, prostate-specific antigen. So I I think they will be able to help find bad cancers a little earlier. Whether that helps people live longer, totally different question. Totally different question. And, and I'm, uh, I'm afraid that the very fact of having a bad cancer and knowing it a little bit earlier uh, won't really change the effectiveness of therapy. Remember, for, for screening to help, it requires not only finding something earlier, but it also means that treatment initiated earlier has to be reliably better than treatment initiated later. That's fascinating. And so it does sound like, to their credit, Grail is doing the right thing and doing a real randomized trial. Yeah, I think they had to get pressured into it a little bit. And I'm hoping we can help exert pressure to get a long follow-up so we actually see what happens to how long people live, because that's the reason to do it. It isn't to find disease a month earlier. It isn't to change the stage distribution. It's whether it helps people live longer. Yes. And I suppose also reduce the collateral damage if they are treated and the tumor hasn't spread as far. They wouldn't need as much chemotherapy. They might need less surgery. Well, well, if if that's the case, they almost certainly should live longer. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. You know, that's how screening is promoted in this country, right? It saves lives. It's, it is promoted that way. And in fact, I'm getting harassed. I've been harassed many times for being late on the mammograms, but I have no risk factors for breast cancer beyond being female. And yet I get harassed and I think we're in a health crisis. We, 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 you know, our hospitals are overwhelmed. Why are they focusing resources on harassing me to get a test I don't need when we're in crisis? Let's talk about that because that's the ugly, right? I mean, there's good, there's bad, the ugly. And what has happened now is, in particularly the case of mammography, it's become a, a, a part of a report card, of a performance measure. And everybody wants to get good grades, whether it's the healthcare systems or the individual docs. And it's been decided that every woman should have a mammogram every year in some systems. And they're just bound and determined to do that, even if they're going to be phoning you at night, telling you, you you know, you don't care about your children if you're not doing it, or or, or you're going to die of breast cancer if you don't do it. That's outrageous. It's become one of the most prominent measures of, quote, quality of the healthcare system. And that's just wrong. I mean, the the truth is a, a high quality healthcare system is one who who provides good care to people who are acutely sick and injured, not one that coerces people, scares people, hassles people uh, to worry about their health when they're well. That, that really gets me angry. 
Okay, this next question will sound kind of naive. I ask about financial incentives, and clearly there is big money in cancer screening and early cancer treatment. But it wasn't clear to me whether there was any money in it for my primary care practice. Oh, I don't. I don't think so. Of course, there's money. It's huge. I mean, even the. I'll be. I'll be clear. I, I should tell you one other anecdote. You know, I I was invited to a conference of, of breast surgeons in this uh, country, and um, uh, the, the president was a very nice gentleman, a little bit older than me. Um, and when he introduced me, he he, he was very clear. He said, "You know, we we really ought to think hard about mammography." That being said, you know, the whole specialty owes its origins to it, right? This produced a whole new surgical specialty, the advent of mammography, because all of a sudden there was so much more breast surgery going on. Okay. And before they just operated on women that had a lump, had symptoms. Absolutely. Right. A whole new group of women were getting. And, and then all of a sudden you saw the advent of breast care centers and, and it became a good business, not just for the surgeons, but for the hospitals, but for the oncologists uh, and for the mammographers. It became a very important part of the business. And, and, we, and, we, and if I could just finish this diatribe, I'm sorry, apologize, no, but I think it's important for people to know COVID-19 hit. And in March, the American Academy of Surgeons cut off elective uh, surgery. And that was a very important step. That's a, very much to their credit. They said, we need our hospitals to be ready to receive patients. And screening basically stopped for about, oh, I don't know, about six months. But it came back very fast. And why did it come back very fast? The hospitals needed it. I mean, this is a great way to produce patients, not just mammography, but PSA screening, colonoscopy. These are big sources of revenue for major medical centers, not just the tests themselves, but all the downstream procedures that are associated with them. I see. Is What's in it for my primary care? Because they're, they're the ones after me. Yeah, they're not making money off it. What they're doing is they're being measured on it, right? This is part of their performance measure. And remember, we doctors have been selected to get good grades, right? That is what we were taught to care about all along our educational career. We, we want to get good grades. And if we're being graded on something, we try to get good grades. And mammography is something we're graded on. So somehow treating all these sick people with COVID isn't profitable for the hospitals because some of them don't have insurance or don't have any money. And because they're really sick patients and they can be there a really long time, yes. So when hospitals have to function the way they're supposed to function, they, they fall apart because they were really structured as big money-making centers. Well, that's really happened over the last 20, 30 years as the corporatization of medicine and more and more, we're a revenue-driven uh, industry, a volume-driven industry. It's really, it is. I was shocking to me early in the pandemic to find out that hospitals have very little capacity for a crisis, very few extra ICU beds. In fact, they're designed to operate. I mean, that's all part of kind of the business model, right? This is as you get the business community running hospitals, you want to use all your capacity. Don't we already know from countries that don't push so many mammograms that 
comparatively speaking, the countries that do don't have a higher death rate from breast cancer? There's quite a debate about how much mammography matters. I, I would say it matters very little. Uh, some, some would argue it, it matters a whole lot. But what no one argues is that we, we in this country have many more false alarms following mammography than any other country in the world. No organized screening system would uh, allow such a high rate of, of false alarms. In a 10-year course of screening, upwards of half of women will have at least one false alarm. That, that's crazy. It, that, that is not a good system. That is crazy. What percentage actually have to go on to the stage where they get a biopsy? Um, well, you know, I, I wish I could just tell you the answer to that question. And, and now I'm going off on another diatribe, but we don't have a, we don't have a comprehensive data system in this country. That, that's like a really good question. What proportion go on to have a biopsy? You'd think that would be an answerable question in the state, but it's not. Because all the data silos, you know, different insurers hold their data. There's Medicare data for the over 65. So that's the one place we can begin to look at the, the country as a whole. But everywhere else, it exists in insurers' uh, databases. Increasingly, they're proprietary databases. That's not a way to run a railroad. If you really want to know, you know, how's mammography working in this country? It ought to be a, a single system where you, you know what's happening following every mammogram. But we don't. So... Is there any evidence that mammograms save lives? <laughs> Depends who you ask. And I would say the, the first thing is that we haven't done a, a randomized trial in the modern era of treatment. Well, and so screening really is when you have a kind of one size fits all system where everybody has to get the same test. Maybe all men get the prostate screening test and all women get the breast cancer tests. Is there also sort of a, a something in between screening and diagnosis where a patient does have a high risk for something? Absolutely. And some people call that risk-based screening. And in general, I would say it's always the case that people at higher risk stand more to benefit from early detection and they're less likely to be overdiagnosed. So the kind of best setting you get for screening is lung cancer screening and heavy smokers. And that's the closest thing that we have to an organized screening program in this country, only because the government said, we're not paying for it unless there's a shared decision-making visit where you actually talk about the benefits and harms of screening, because all screening tests have benefits and harms. And where we're going to say we're going to have very strict criteria about who's eligible because they got to be at high risk. And we're going to require that people contribute their data to a national database to keep track of things like false alarms and extra biopsies and, and all, all this sort of side effects that go along with a screening program. But your general point is well taken. In general, high-risk patients uh, stand more to uh, benefit and um, are less likely to be subject to overdiagnosis. No one is debating the value of a mammogram in a woman that's noticed a new breast lump. She should get a mammogram. There's no question about it. It's a good test to try to figure out what that lump is. The question is whether we should be inviting, or in your case, coercing or hassling 
every woman to come in to have one when they don't have a law. That's a totally different setting. That's general population-based screening. Yeah. That's that's very, I think that makes a lot of sense, but often in the public mind, it gets confused. That's right. We think it's something about the test is either good or bad. It's that simple. No, no, no. It's about who's it's being done on. The conversation then turned to a company called Theranos. That's a biotech that promised to revolutionize medicine with lots and lots of tests. The company's been in the news a lot lately. It was one of the subjects of last week's podcast episode. The founder of that company is now on trial for fraud, and the company no longer exists, but what does still exist is a belief that more testing is always better. Well, and that gets back to Theranos, because it seems like that company couldn't have become worth billions if so many people didn't believe in this idea that more data is better and will save lives. I would say virtually every biotech is, is this, 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 this misplaced faith that it's always good to find problems. <laughs> find, find abnormal data. That, that looking hard for things to be wrong is impatience interest. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's sometimes very much not in their interest. I can find something wrong with you. If you got the time and the money, I can find something wrong with you. I'm very confident, Faye. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think I wondered whether that's sort of the nature of the human body, that the older we get, the more little lumps and bumps appear that don't do anything. Abnormality is part of life. Yeah, we're going to find things wrong with people. The question is, does it help them? And I, I, I think it, it very much helps them when they're sick and suffering. I asked him for some parting thoughts, and he told me that preventative health is a good thing, but the system might not be going about it the best way for patients. As we talk about testing in general, you know, I've, I've been beating up on my own world a little bit. The medical care has it's gotten very volume driven. There's really this whole other portion of the economy that's sort of servicing medical care. The biotech startups, you know, that the companies that are uh, producing drugs and devices and tests for medical care. And, and that's a very big money kind of business that's just trying to sell things. And the testing part is, is really selling this belief that the path to health is through monitoring yourself, you know, whether it's your heart rate or whether it's your uh, EKG or whether it's your uh, tumor DNA. And the problem with that is I think it tends to distract the public from the genuine determinants of human health, things your grandmother uh, would have told you, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, uh, don't smoke and uh, go play outside. You know, the, they're, they're not sexy, they're not high tech, but those are the things we can do for our health. I think there's been a lot of focus on what's wrong with society that's allowed COVID-19 to spread as far as it has but maybe not enough discussion about what's wrong with the medical system. I'm not talking about a problem with the doctors and nurses who are working really hard, but maybe a problem with the system that's not letting them do what they do best. It's not clear it's been really productive for people to be so enraged about the fact that humans are humans and therefore fallible and not perfect about following all the COVID-19 restrictions. 
Maybe it would be more productive to turn some of our thoughts to how healthcare and public health could have served us humans better. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. You can follow us on Facebook for the latest, but if you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix.